Good morning, Crossview. Do you have your coffee this morning, or do you have it now? So, uh, it's been a week, hasn't it? Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, lots going on, lots of different kinds of things to face. And I wonder if you're coming off of a week with some challenges, if you're coming off of a week with some difficulties or you're struggling right now. Uh, I just would like to pray for us that we're sort of released from those things. So why don't we just pray one more time together. If you'd bow your heads with me. Take a deep breath. Be free of the busyness of the stress, the challenges. Jesus, we ask that you would be here with us, that you would release us, that you would free us to hear your word unencumbered by other challenges. Help us see your face and to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I love hearing all the enthusiasm and seeing the pictures of VBS. Wasn't that fun? Uh, I got to observe a little bit of it. I was out under the tent meeting with uh, Jeff Miller talking about adult Bible classes that are coming up this fall. And it was this this idyllic evening where the sun's setting and children of all ages are playing out in the field. I said, Jeff, I think this looks a little bit like heaven. (laughs) He said, yeah, yeah, this is something like it. It was just one of those beautiful moments. And that's what I get to talk to you about today is uh, heaven, about heavenly bodies, about what we get to look forward to, and what we get to do and enjoy right now. Um, I'd like to start by actually reading through this rather lengthy passage of Scripture. Uh, you know, when Paul writes, and when he begins uh, making a case, he does it so well, and he constructs things so meaningfully that I just hate to bypass that. So if you would read along, um, uh, we'll have the slides on the screens here, or you can flip on your phone or read in your Bible with me. I'll be reading from 35 to the end, and then after that, we'll just kind of walk through section by section and see what kind of case Paul's making about resurrection bodies. So I'll begin. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ uh, from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second second man is from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so are also all those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised. Does anyone hear Handel's Messiah in your head right now? I, I do. You'll hear the trumpet sounding here in a second. Uh, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must be put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the immortal puts on immortality, then we shall come to pass as everything well was written, is written. Sorry, Death will be swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We're going to jump right into it here because uh, it's a lot, isn't it, to take in. Uh, in uh, these verses, uh, we hear so much and see so much imagery. Uh, throughout 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with one of life's most critical issues that all of us face, and that is death. The people of Corinth appear to be asking a lot of questions about what happens to us when we die. We all have had these thoughts and have asked these questions. As you know, we have relatively little amount of time on earth, but we have enough time to ask these big questions, to contemplate, and to try and come up with what answers we can about what is life for and what happens when we die. But a lot of times we avoid it too, don't we? We put things in our way. Uh, we kind of block it out. We ignore our impending what uh, death uh, because it's... A difficult thing to think about. It's not pretty. Death isn't glamorous, uh, regardless of what Hollywood tries to show us. Uh, Death is an enemy to be defeated. And you know, and I know, that we don't have any weapon to bear against it. It's coming. And uh, sure, we have awesome technologies. Uh, Medical possibilities are amazing uh, at prolonging life and helping us with sicknesses and things like that. But there, unfortunately, is no fountain of youth. Unless you found it, let me know. Eventually, all of us are going to meet our end. Seems like kind of a downer of a start for a sermon, maybe. But there's hope, I promise you, built into the scriptures we've read. It sounds like bad news, and it really could be, except for those of us who serve a living Savior who's in the world today. Jesus not only died for our sin, he not only died for our sins, which is awesome, He also defeated death once and for all, for all who would receive him into their lives. We've inherited this curse of death because of sin in the world, but Jesus came to claim victory over both sin and death so that we can be forever alive as members of God's family. Uh, Matt and I read a book by a theologian named Gustav Allen, and he says it this way, Man had been created by God that he might have life, If now, having lost life and having been harmed by the serpent, he were not to return to life, 
but were to be wholly abandoned to death, then God would have been defeated, and the malice of the serpent would have overcome God's will. But since God is both invincible and magnanimous, he showed his magnanimity in correcting man. But through the second man, he bound the strong one, the devil, and spoiled his goods and annihilated death, bringing life to humankind, which has become subject to death. For Adam had become the devil's possession, and the devil held him under his power by having wrongfully practiced deceit upon him, and by the offer of immortality made him subject to death, by promising that they should be as gods, which did not lie in his power, he worked death in them. Wherefore, he who had taken man captive was himself taken captive by God, and man who had been taken captive was set free from the bondage of condemnation. I think the Corinthians understood these elements of salvation. I think they knew about and understood that Jesus came incarnate, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, that he uh, was buried, and that he rose again. But they were really struggling with this concept of their personal resurrection. Uh, they were asking the question, how are the dead raised? And Paul, being the shepherd that he is, wants to lead his sheep to the truth. And he presents this whole case woven throughout this chapter of the importance, really the imperativeness of the resurrection. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I wonder if Paul says it this way because he feels they really should have had this figured out by now. Uh, and uh, he, they still don't get it, or they did, lack the faith to understand or, or to really believe in uh, resurrection life. So Paul starts boiling it down for them, helps them understand. Did you hear the seed language woven throughout this chapter, right? It's really cool. Uh, he uses imagery uh, like the seed that appears to be dead, like when you eat an apple and you get those little brown seeds. We usually discard them, right? But if you plant them, what happens, right? Uh, it can come to life, right? And it can grow, it can blossom, it can bear fruit. Amazing things can happen. And so what's planted in the ground springs to new life. Paul goes on to explain that as there are different kinds of bodies for different kinds of animals, so there will be different kinds of bodies for us, uh, for you and for me, when we're no longer alive in this world. Paul says men have one kind of flesh and animals another, birds another, fish another. He then uses celestial imagery to point out the differences between our earthly body and heavenly bodies by saying there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the star for stars differ from star in glory. After making all these comparisons that we see in verse 42, Paul brings this point home, still using seed imagery by saying, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Think about that seed being planted into the earth. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised as a spiritual body. I want to point out, though, that Paul in no way is denigrating the value and beautiful gift of the human body. He would know Psalm 139 where it says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Paul would later uh, refute the Gnostics, right, who actually believed the body wasn't worth anything, that it wasn't to be considered. But no, uh, he understands and values the importance of our physical selves. He's pointing out that while life is a gift and these bodies we have are wonderful, there is hope for an even better spiritual experience. But what does it mean to be a spiritual being? That's what he's after here. Uh, From some of the study notes I encountered uh, this week, I read that having a spiritual body does not mean a non-material body, but a physical one, similar to the present natural body, but radically different in that it will be imperishable, glorious, and powerful, fit to live eternally with God. Some of us may have grown up with this notion of sort of this ethereal, angelic afterlife where we're on, I think Matt mentioned this, floating on clouds and playing harps. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? At least give me drums or something fun to play. (laughs) But uh, no, the reality is when we are raised in Christ, we're going to be real people, right? Uh, With real experiences, all of this uh, reading in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and thinking about imperfect bodies and imperfect bodies brought to mind my friend Dan. Uh, mind you, this is a little bit difficult for me because it stems from a sad time in life. And so I'll do my best. Cheer me on. <laughs> uh, Dan and I were good friends in our 20s. Uh, we did uh, everything together, played video games. It was uh, back when the Chicago Bulls were just a dynasty and winning, and Michael Jordan, Scott, yeah, woo, uh, Scotty Pippen, and that whole crew. It was just a wonderful time. We loved sports. We loved the Bible. Uh, Dan loved reading the scriptures, uh, and uh, we talked about them hours into the night. It ended up where I moved in with Dan and his mom as Dan's dad got very sick with a uh, a nasty cancer and, and passed away. So they needed some live-in evening help. And so I was the, the caretaker. So I would come home uh, after a day of work and help with mealtime, uh, hang out, play games, have fun, but then go through bath times. I even did the gross stuff, uh, the bathroom stuff uh, that had to be done that he couldn't do for himself. I actually developed a mechanism in my head. I called it the gross switch to get me through it. And when I had to do something, I just turned that switch off and said, nope, this is fine. It worked. If ever you have to encounter that kind of thing, you might need to have that kind of trick, right? It, it, uh, it's effective. Um, I would uh, you know, bathe him in the shower. I would uh, get him dressed for bed. There was a special crane that I used to hoist him up and to swing him into his bed and to lower him. Then I learned how to use the sheets to get him into a comfortable position. And uh, that was good. Uh, you know, I'll tell you a little bit of a sidebar truth. We're like brothers, which is really good because we had a lot of fun, but we also argued a lot. We just fought. <laughs> you might think me cruel for fighting with a disabled guy in a power wheelchair, but that guy was ornery sometimes. And I'll tell you, he had some moves with that chair. He knew how to pull that thing back and swing it forward. He would literally kick me when he was mad at me. <laughs> well, I got him back, honestly. There was a time when... You know, he was being himself, and I was washing his face, and he just wouldn't stop, wouldn't stop. I threw the rag at his face, and was just kind of hanging there. I just walked out of the room. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. Uh, but, uh, 
Eventually, it's like, Mark, I'm sorry. I went in and I apologized and we were fine. Most of the time, we got along. But again, we had that sort of give and take relationship. Well, Dan, uh, in his 20s with muscular dystrophy, uh, began to get very, very sick. And slowly, more and more muscles were shutting down. I had to learn how to give him uh, saline injections and a port in his chest and run an IV and things like that in his home. I had to uh, hold a spit cup under his chin as he desperately tried to clear fluid from his lungs. And it all came to a head one freezing cold night in the middle of the winter when I couldn't do anything to help him to make him comfortable. His oxygen levels were dropping really, really low, and we had to get him to the hospital. I loaded him in, and his mom uh, drove him in the van uh, to the emergency room, and uh, I collapsed on the floor and just cried. I said, God, why? Why does he have to endure this? Why does it have to be so hard? It wasn't long after that that uh, I went to the hospital to say goodbye, and I was by his bedside when life support was removed. And Dan left this life uh, to move on to life eternal. And uh, it still makes me sad. Isn't that weird all these years later? <laughs> but that's how it is. Uh, you know, I, I tell you this story not to make you sad, but to give you hope. And I'll tell you how it gave me hope. A couple years later, I ran in a marathon, a uh, Cincinnati Flying Pig Marathon. Yes, it's called the Flying Pig Marathon. <laughs> and, and I trained hard for it, and I was doing well. Uh, but uh, around mile 22 or so, I hit a hard wall. And I wasn't doing well. It's a very hilly course. And uh, I was pumping, and I just, I knew that energy level had dropped to a point where I didn't have what it take. And so I looked to heaven, and I prayed, God, give me the strength I need. Inspire me, help me. I really want to finish this well, to your glory. And I saw Dan looking down on me, smiling, <laughs> showing me that he could run back and forth. Because he had a new, perfect body. And that's what got me through. Now, I don't know if it was a runner's high <laughs> or, or what, but I'd like to think that the curtain of heaven was pulled back just enough for me to see that, yeah, there is real life. There is real life after we move on. I tell you this because Dan was an amazing person who had a deep faith in God. And I like to share about my time with him. But again, I share this with you uh, to give you hope. In Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Well, on in verses 44 to 49, Paul exchange, explains rather what Jesus did to give us this hope. He writes, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Isn't that cool? So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, meaning Jesus, a living spirit. The spirit did not come, but the, the spirit did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we are uh, just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness 
of the man from heaven. So shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Would you like to hear more about him? I would. I'd like to think more about him. Let's hear about Jesus. After Jesus was publicly executed, he was put into a tomb, buried. But we know that he rose again, right? And we get to hear about some resurrection appearances when he came back and showed that he was alive. You don't have to turn there, but I'll be reading from Luke 24, starting at verse 36. And uh, this is when the disciples are congregating, and there's all this buzz around and confusion about where's Jesus' body, what's happened, right? And he just sort of appears in the room. Listen as I read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, meaning they thought they saw a ghost, right? And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before him. Well, the first thing we recognize is that Jesus just appears in the room uh, talking. He apparently doesn't need doors in this state. He immediately sees that his disciples are afraid and terrified and tries to allay their concerns by showing them the physicality of his existence. In summary, Jesus demonstrates that he's not some ghost. He's the real deal. A theologian I found, his name is Leonard D. Lorenzo, said his best. He says, Jesus eats a lot of fish throughout Luke's gospel. But this is the only time in Luke... Uh, That Luke tells us about Jesus eating after the resurrection. And this fish, which once swam in a school of fish and was caught and then broiled, was consumed by the glorified body of the Savior. No other fish in a school of fish or in all the seas of the world can claim that honor. Blessed are you among fish. Why does that line remind me of Kyle White so much? That just sounds like a whiteism, doesn't it? (laughs) The focal point of this final appearance of Jesus to his disciples is not, of course, the fish, but rather Jesus himself, or to be more specific, his body. The disciples don't know uh, what they are seeing. They think they're seeing a spirit or a ghost. The very last thing they were expecting to see was a human body. Jesus working here uh, in appearing to the disciples in this manner was to persuade them that the last thing they expect is precisely what they're encountering. Truly, he's not a figment, not a reminder, not a liberated spirit, not a disincarnate presence, uh, not what they might have accepted as possible, even if unlikely. This is the recognizable body with the same marks of nails, those hands, those feet, and with this body he can eat, whether he needs to or not. That broiled fish becomes part of the glorified body, even if we have no idea how a glorified digestive system might work cool. I like to think that we're going to be eating in heaven. Isn't that neat? Uh, It talks about feasting and things. Uh, From Hebrews uh, 2.14, it says that since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that going through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
And as we look back on 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we see it says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of man in heaven, of the man in heaven. What does it mean to bear the image of the man in heaven? Well, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. This Jesus that we're just talking about, we shall be like him, right? Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him uh, purifies himself as he is pure. So knowing Jesus now means that we will be like Jesus when he rose again with a real but better and totally imperishable body. Uh, By spiritual body, Paul does not mean an immaterial body, but a body animated and powered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the the imperishable. Church family, like I said earlier, there's no escape. Now, certainly, we are obligated to do what we can to take care of these bodies of ours, to not expedite death, right? So eating right, exercise, abstaining from things that are bad for us not only makes sense, it's just plain good stewardship of the bodies we've been given. However, no amount of right foods, right exercise, or right lifestyle can help us avoid the inevitable. What really matters in the end is the condition of your character and the condition of your soul. Do you believe the following from verses 51 and 52? It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Do you believe that this morning? I see heads nodding, and that's really good because I have good news for you. If that's what you believe, you've already been made alive in Christ, and you will one day have a brand new, unbroken, perfectly healthy, fish-eating body. If there is fish in heaven, and I'm hoping so because I like catching and eating fish, so that sounds heavenly to me. Look at Paul's quotation of Isaiah in verse 55. It says, Death is swallowed in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, Death, where is your sting? Doesn't it sound like Paul's mocking it? You've got nothing here. You lose. Jesus wins. In him, we have the victory. Victory over what? We have victory over sin and death. Read verse 56 with me. It says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We have been freed from sin and the law because Jesus and all of his perfection overcame everything that we couldn't possibly overcome. And in verse 57 is our proper response. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? I like that. As it says in the great hymn of the church, And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Verse 58 starts with a therefore. And you know what you have to do when there's a therefore? What question you have to ask? What is the therefore? I know it's cheesy. 
but I still like it. <laughs> it means pay attention. I've told you all of this, and here's how you need to respond to the truths that have been put here before you. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we have some instructions from Paul here, don't we? He says we have to be steadfast, immovable, working hard in the work of the Lord. Okay? To be steadfast is to remain clear-eyed and persistent in our faith. To maintain a demeanor of abiding loyalty to Jesus and the ways he showed us how to live. To be, immo- to be immovable means that while we will be tempted and tried, we have to make a real effort uh, in the way to live in the ways of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is not opposed to our effort, right? No, this doesn't earn us merit, but it's our response to the gospel. It's our response to the truth. To abound in the work of the Lord means a lot of things, I think. We have to be all in for the sake of the gospel. Constantly growing in Christ, sharing the good news to our households, to our towns, our cities, and to the ends of the earth. All right, so we've been given some things to do here in light of the gospel truths that have been mapped out, the case that's been made. In the spirit of application, I want to call you all to become apprentices of Jesus. And I know many of you are apprentices of Jesus. Because guess what? If you're in Jesus, your forever forever life has already begun. You get to experience what being an eternal person is even as we speak. Jesus has awesome ideas for you and he shows us how to enjoy a good life right now by how he lived his life on earth. Remember, be imitators of Christ, right? We're being called to be imitators of Jesus. And so I'm going to share some neat things that I've been learning uh, through this wonderful book, Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. In the preface for this book, uh, Willard lays out his premise by saying, we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him and the overall style of life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. No one lived better, right? No one lived better than Jesus lived. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his Father. Isn't that where we need to be? Constantly at home in the fellowship of the Father. If we're to live the life we're called to, that needs to happen. So what activities did Jesus practice? What are some things that we might actually do? Well, he did such things as solitude and silence, prayer and simple sacrificial living, intense study and meditation in God's word, in God's ways and service to others. Think about how Jesus lived and what his practices were. Think of him after a long day of working with very poor people with terrible illnesses, hearing their stories, touching them, healing them one by one, being faced by any number of people with very real demonic possessions, right? From sun up to sundown, Jesus did this. And what did he do the next morning? We find that he woke up while it was still very dark. He departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Do you have that margin in your life to connect with the Father in this manner? 
to get away from the busyness, like I was talking about at the very beginning when we prayed, right? Do you have that time for release of all the stresses and anxieties to lay all of your cares before Him because He cares for you, right? It takes intentionality. It takes time. Presumably, Jesus spent time with the Father, praying, sharing His heart, and being ministered to as He listened in prayer. Do you listen in prayer? Do you follow that that model that Jesus gives us where we break away? Let me suggest this is an essential practice for us as we grow to know what it means to have eternal life right now, communing with the Father. Jesus engaged in and taught about fasting. We know prior to launching his ministry, he was led out to the wilderness by the Spirit, and there he fasted for 40 days. Uh, And he faced the most significant trial of his pre-ministry life where tremendous temptations, dramatic temptations were brought brought before him by the Satan. And Jesus uh, taught about fasting. He told us that when we fast, not to look gloomy like the hypocrites and all that. He said, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And so Jesus is suggesting here that, yes, you should be fasting, and here's the way not to do it and to do it, right? It's supposed to be part of our rhythm. The question remains, though, why should we fast? That's hard. It's hard going without food, right? Well, Willard says it well in Spirit of the Disciplines. He says, fasting confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding Him as a source of sustenance beyond food. Through it, we learn by experience that God's word to us is a life substance. And that a life uh, substance, that it is not food like bread alone that gives us life, but also the words that proceed from the mouth of God. We learn that we too have a meat to eat that the world does not know about. Fasting unto our Lord, therefore, is fasting and feasting on him, doing his will. In fasting, we learn how to suffer happily as we feast on God. In times of fasting, what I found is that when I set aside food uh, to think about other good things, it amplifies that experience of thinking about good things in the Word, good projects that we could do in His name. It really is something uh, to consider. Uh, I know it's not for everyone, and not everyone can go without food for long periods of time. Uh, Sometimes you can just try simply not snacking between meals, really breaking away from food from uh, this time to this time. And maybe if that hunger pang comes along, use that moment to thank God for his his provision, to exercise the discipline of gratitude, of thankfulness. Uh, It can be really meaningful and uh, changing for you. I do suggest that if you can, engage in longer fasts. It will change you in great ways, and you'll learn to yearn for real food that can only come from Jesus. It's a powerful thing to do that Jesus modeled for us. Uh, Also, I'm not going to get really into this, but our devices are always in front of us, a lot of us anyway, right? It's really good to fast from this stuff when you can, to get away from uh, news media, to get away from screens, to get away from social media, and to use that time for something else. Uh, It's unhealthy how much time some of us spend in front of screens. And do consider breaking away and spending that time with Jesus or doing his good work. Jesus also, I think there's a lot of evidence that he spent time in study and meditation. 
You'll recall when Jesus was just, was just a boy, he was 12 years old, and his family uh, caravan went on without him, probably not a Dodge caravan, but the caravan went on with, I'm just seeing if you're awake, <laughs> and it took a couple of days, three days for Mary and Joseph to figure out where he was. Lo and behold, he's in the synagogue, right? And we read that after three days, they found him in temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. Jesus was demonstrating, even at the age of 12, he had engaged in considerable study and was conversant in the things of God. And we know in his ministry, Jesus frequently taught in the synagogues, reading from the prophets and teaching to his followers. To truly know what this life is for, to flourish, and to engage in eternal living, we have to be good students of the Bible. Since solitude, fasting, meditation, and study, silence, solitude, fasting, meditation, and study, these are just a few things that we can do. There are lots of things that we can do to become true apprentices of Jesus, preparing for and engaging in the eternal It's that already but not yet kind of thing we keep hearing about. You're presently in a place where you can live for things eternal as you look forward to a real, physical, imperishable existence with Jesus. Now is the time. Uh, Forever is actually here right now, and the rest of forever is right around the corner. So I encourage you, engage in practices that drive you closer to Jesus, uh, closer to one another as a family of God. And look to that time where we'll receive the ultimate comfort. Till then, be comforters to one another. Life is hard, right? We encounter any number of difficulties. But focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we'll arrive at his kingdom already right now. And we'll be there together in the not yet. Will you pray with me as the worship team uh, sings the last song for us? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word for the work that you're doing in our hearts, for the experiences that we go through. Even when life is hard, even when the diagnosis is not good and the prognosis is not good, you are our Lord and you love us and you've given us the key to eternity that is in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for new life. We thank you that we get to start living that new life right now, that you've given us all we need for life and godliness. Fill our hearts now as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.